You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. We're joined today by Dr. Genevieve Lester, who's the author of the new book, When Should State Secrets Stay Secret? Accountability, Democratic Governance, and Intelligence. Dr. Lester is currently a research fellow and lecturer at the University of California, Washington Center, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Recently, she was visiting assistant professor in the Security Studies Program, coordinator of Intelligence Studies, and senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. Her work concerns security and accountability, with a particular focus on intelligence oversight. She holds a PhD and MA in political science from the University of California at Berkeley, an MA in international economics and international relations from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and a BA in history from Carleton College. She has been a fellow of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London and a Fulbright Scholar in Berlin. And she's an unbelievable overachiever. So welcome, Jen. Thank you for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you so much for having me. So our audience tends to be, uh, you know, budding writers, authors themselves, students of intelligence. And so I always try to ask our authors about their process, the sources they use, their methodology, and of course, with any book of intelligence, how they dealt with the secrecy and classification issues. So how did this book come together? Well, this book is actually a revision of my doctoral dissertation. And it came together rather accidentally, actually. Mainly, I met series of intelligence officers while working on my research here in Washington, D.C., and they were incredibly generous and were willing to talk to me. And so basically, I would have to say that there was the, the grand schema was that I was able to have access to these individuals, and then we built the project around that. So that is how this whole thing started. So as a historian who we always are, are worried about bias in our, our sources and our, our methodology, uh, were you perhaps concerned that as your primary source, which getting intelligence officers to be a primary source is fantastic, but 
maybe not necessarily the most objective sources. Is that something that crossed your mind at any point? Constantly. And one of the things I did in addition to all of my other overachievements, as you put yeah. it, was to uh, work on methods. I do a lot of methods work in political science because of because of these issues, and especially if you're doing heavily qualitative work that is not the norm in political science. It is complicated to put together a methodological package for something like this or a methodological framework. I, I should also make a comment on, on the genesis of the project when it comes to methods because when we originally put together, my committee and myself put together this project on accountability, it was on external oversight. I thought to balance out the external view that it would be really important to have the internal view. And therefore, it's almost the opposite of what you're suggesting. Right. I got very lucky with um, amazingly generous members of the intelligence community who were willing to give me a, a lot of time. And I'm not kidding. I'm kind of uh, a little compulsive about these things. So I interviewed many of them many, many, many times and had them check their quotes and all of this right. type of thing. But as I said, it, it is almost the opposite in that I wanted to get the internal view because, right. as you suggest, the secrecy of this, the opacity, ambiguity of intelligence operations, they, that makes it very complicated to deal, to even understand what's happening. So how can we understand how oversight is happening if we don't understand the internal piece? Well, the external versus internal is one of the real key components of this book that makes it really interesting. Um, because most of the work done in the past has really been limited to maybe one branch of government. A lot of people look at the legislative, you know, the, the two committees, uh, and very few look at the other branches of government, the executive, the judicial, but even within the CIA, within the agencies themselves. And I think this this openness to to look at both inside and outside is, is a really interesting component of this book. And, and really, uh, the, am I wrong to suggest that the question that you're facing is one of accountability, is one of oversight versus things like openness or transparency? Those are kind of more secondary even tertiary to the overall topic. Well, they're definitely fundamental components of accountability, but the book itself, and you touched upon this beautifully, which is how to expand our view. How do we expand the our perspective on oversight? And that's why I looked at all three branches of government. And also, as you, as you mentioned, looked within the agency, and, and the book does focus predominantly on CIA, because that was the agency that I was most interested in. Um, so it was to uh, broaden the perspective so that we have not only all three branches of government, but this internal piece, but also looking at how the different branches and different mechanisms within these branches interact with each other. Right. And that, that, that sets up the framework for the discussion. But what I wanted to also touch upon is this idea of looking into our assumptions about accountability. And that's another thing the book hopefully does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can only be optimistic that this comes across, which is to, to question some of our assumptions. And within an Ameri the American democracy, there are certain uh, things we take for granted or expect. And one would be that greater oversight would equal greater transparency. And that is the story, part of the story, and there are many different themes that run throughout. Right. Um, but one of them is, is, is this true? So as oversight mechanisms in all three branches, uh, but especially the external ones, as they develop and mature, are they creating greater openness or rather the reverse? Well, and I, and I was going to touch upon this almost as like the last question, because it's a big conclusion, a big premise of your book, and that you somewhat paradoxically conclude that it's the opposite. Exactly. And that is exactly that gradually as these mechanisms mature and become institutionalized, they help create uh, almost a secret environment. And I want to make 
at this point very clear. I'm not saying this is a scary, bad thing or a conspiracy or mm -hmm. something like that that's negative. Actually, I would try very hard in this book, again, hoping I achieve this, to be objective and to take all of these viewpoints into account. But yes, that is what I come, the, the final conclusion actually is to me, which is that as these mechanisms, I keep using the word mechanism, that would be the oversight committees right. in both uh, chambers and the FISA court, for example, but that as you as they grow, this system becomes institutionalized in a way that actually aids in the continuance of secrecy. Which flies in the face of what a lot of Americans would perceive that these these organizations like the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, like the FISA courts, uh, like internal uh, accountability and oversight groups will make it to where the Americans may have a better say or a larger dog in the fight when it comes to the intelligence communities. And you're, you're arguing the opposite, really, that these are actually institutionalizing secrecy, making it easier for these agencies to maintain secrecy, to make them less open, less transparent. And I'm saying this, again, without the negative connotation. Right. I'm trying very hard not yeah. to have the negative connotation there because I think that we must, and as you mentioned at the very beginning of this, the difficulty of doing academic work in this space is that we do need secrecy around these programs. It's a tension and in the democracy, how open should these things be when we have operational needs that require secrecy? So I'm not saying, oh, this becomes closed and bad and right. removed from the American people in a negative, intentional way. I'm saying that this is what comes out of this process as these mechanisms develop, but also that we have to understand as Americans, and I have to admit, I keep coming back to Americans, the American democracy, that type of thing. This is this book is particularly U.S. focused. Right. Um, but that is the core piece of this, which is, I think, core to almost any discussion of intelligence. How do you handle that friction between need for operational uh, secrecy and the American democratic expectation of openness when it comes to our government and the people who speak for us right. and make decisions for us? I, we talked about the fact that you look at both internal and external accountability uh, oversight Let's start on the internal side, um, and then we'll work our way through it. Um, I, I often get asked by students who come here to the Spy Museum, uh, who are looking at a career one day, like, what do I study to get into the CIA? And the, the automatic answer, oh, political science, history, international relations, nowadays more about the STEM subjects, mm -hmm. science, technology, mathematics. Um, but you could potentially say, become a lawyer, and you can find yourself a pretty good job in CIA. You talk a lot about law and about the fact quotes from from several directors and others that say lawyers are everywhere nowadays and i think that's one of the interesting concepts in this book that agencies of course the cia and specifically operate at the margins of legality but because of that they have to be extra conscious about what is actually legal versus illegal i'd like to make just a distinction there though the it, the agencies aren't operating at the edge of domestic law within this country but that's another tension. We see that in order for them to do their function that we expect them to do and to complete their mission, they are breaking foreign laws. Right. But they are adhering to domestic laws. Just to make that point clear, um, or there'll be some people after me. Um, <laughs> but yes, so we. this is – and the reason I point this out a lot in this book is to – to uh, negate or to try and argue against this concept or this this sense that the agencies are rogue, that they're running off doing, especially CIA, because there, it has this this mythologic right. piece 
um, piece to it that they're, they're, they're what myth and reality means within the context of the CIA is something that's discussed here a lot at the museum. Mm -hmm. We see we see James Bond, and then we also see actual operational tools. Right. So how so we have these two sides within the discussion of intelligence. But to just come back to the, the question you asked me about the the legal piece is that. You first of all are balancing these two sides. You're balancing adhering to, to domestic law, bureaucratic procedure, institutions, oversight, and then you're also though charged again with conducting activity, activities in a way that, and sometimes are breaking foreign law. So that tension is pretty crucial. Right. I, you said sometimes. I mean, there's not a country in the world where it's legal to commit espionage. So yeah, Trying I mean, to be a little subtle. Here. No, I, I, you know, Peter Ernest, our executive director constantly says like his job was to go overseas and convince people to break their nation's laws. And mm -hmm. I, and that's an interesting dynamic. And I think within the CIA specifically, uh, there's a very interesting dynamic between two internal accountability organizations full of lawyers. Uh, and that's the general counsel of the CIA and the inspector general of the CIA. And you point out that for many people in the agency, the general counsel is an ally, is somebody they can turn to for legal advice, where the IG in many cases is seen as a, more in an adversarial relationship to many people in the CIA. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Definitely. So in the, the OGC, that is the, where the, the attorneys within the, the CIA are, that's where they're based. And they are embedded at every level, though. There are lawyers dealing with every part of programming, especially things that are sensitive, such as covert action. So you have this sense of, of partnership with, with the attorneys. And I, I, I don't want to make the point too strong about an adversarial relationship with the office of, of the, the um, inspector general, but there's definitely uh, some friction there because mm -hmm. that, that role, that office is charged with following up on potential malfeasance, accountability issues, that type of thing internally. So, and, and also that role has several different components. So you're doing audits and reports and that type of thing, but you're also doing investigations. Should there be some suspected wrongdoing? What um, some steps have been made recently to make that more of an ombudsman uh, role so that that would be a place of recourse should internal uh, should uh, employees need to express some anxiety about activities, that type of thing. Right. But there's definitely more friction with that role because of this audit, this type of experience. But also just to um, to move beyond that from the internal piece of the statutory inspector general is this dual reporting role that is that I would say is where the friction point is with that particular role. Um, because in this case, you have an inspector general who reports internally through his up to this point, his or her um, director, the director of CID, CIA, but also is responsible for reporting to the Hill, to the, the congressional oversight committees. So in a sense, it could be argued that this is a split loyalty, right? That yeah. is this crossing the boundaries between separation of branches? Is this even appropriate governance? If you have uh, this individual, I, mean, I use the individual. There's an office and there's a lot right. of other staff, but th this person must report in two different directions. And some of the senior members within the agencies have really, really pushed back on this, saying that this is this is breaking apart boundaries that are appropriate for good governance in terms of crossing over these boundaries. Well, you tell the, you tell the story in your book about the real friction between the IG and the CIA during uh, Michael Hayden's tenure as the DCIA. Uh, a man named John Helgerson was the IG, and Hayden actually launched an investigation against his own IG, mm -hmm. which it seems like, you know, Wonderland levels of crazy. Well, and that... It, it, 
I'm not sure if I quite put it that way. <laughs> I, I like putting things in a way. I don't get in trouble with this, so I like putting it in ways that... <laughs> I think what it does expose, though, is uh, what how these mechanisms grow and how they get strengthened. So if you do have a statutory... Statutory, so this is a bylaw that this happens this way, that there is a stool reporting requirement. But if you undercut that role, and I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I'm saying this dynamic can weaken or strengthen or allow the position to be weakened or strengthened. If you've got the DCIA, for example, undercutting that role, saying, oh, I, we don't think your behavior is appropriate. We're going to have that you be investigated by another individual. That really weakens that mechanism. And this comes can get very granular. It comes down to personal levels. It gets personal interactions, personalities. I think also there's um, and I, I talk about this in the book quite a bit, uh, institutional culture, what the expectations are, how the different divisions take their responsibilities and how that works and how there is friction actually. And, and this is quite normal in bureaucracies, but mm -hmm. it's, it's I, I would argue, more distinctive within um, intelligence agencies where, where a lot of, there's a lot of danger involved right. that these cultures can conflict with each other or there's friction. And that was one of the problems with that particular incident that you mentioned that one particular group felt singled out. You mentioned in the book uh, something may people not think about as oversight, and that's counterintelligence as, as a means of oversight. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that dynamic works? And, and of course, can counterintelligence oversight go too far? And of course, Angleton is the great example of where you can take it a little beyond where it should go. So with counterintelligence, I, I, and I'm, I talk about this in within the internal aspect right. of the book, just that there's a piece of this, and there are many aspects of counterintelligence, and I would also say that it is one of the most opaque pieces, at least for me in my studies, how to understand how it works, what the pieces of it are, and what effectiveness is, because you ultimately... Speaking of, uh, I can't believe I can't remember what you said. Crazy Wonderland. Yes. Uh, it can get you into a place, and, and Angleton is a good example of this, where you are second guessing everything, right. and you're wondering who can be on your side, who's on your side, who uh, is supporting the mission, maybe who a mole, who where the uh, if there's a potential mole, those types of things. And I think with intelligence agencies that are closed off from the external world, this can get exacerbated because you must be able to depend on your internal cohort right. to support your activities because you are removed from the regular uh, openness of, of bureaucracies. So there right. are many pieces of it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, certainly it's hard enough to operate because of all the external pressures that you have that we'll talk about here in a second without trusting the people around you and without kind of coming together as an agency in your own and that that could potentially set you back pretty significantly if you can't you know trust your own ig you can't trust your own counsel you can't trust your own you know uh employees and from a counterintelligence perspective i, I imagine that makes life very very difficult for these agencies well, and i would just make one point here that the fundamental to the institutional culture of these agencies is trust the, the level of trust is very high. You, the boundaries to entry are so high, the barriers to entry, right. uh, polygraphs, background checks, giving up a lot of your, what we would uh, assume are, are freedoms in a democracy, financial checks, this type of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest ones now, the financial it, checks, yes. because you, you 
that's the way that people are going to get to you if they're going to churn you is is through money in many cases. Exactly. Well, the the, the whole point is to expose any vulnerabilities. Right. So it, it used to be it's changed a lot, and I find that actually very interesting too. That it used to be, for example, homosexuality was was a, a friction point, um, and now, as you mentioned, um, the financial piece is is the most is one of the most crucial things in terms of choosing who is part of this world and who gets to stay in this world. So I think the fundamental assumption is not that you don't trust. The fundamental assumption is that you do trust. And so when you have somebody like Angleton who went so far in the other direction that he was finding um, bad actors everywhere right. in his own mind, yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole other discussion right. about his his whole track record on this stuff. But I do think that you, you really see the, the culture tear apart in those moments because it's crucial in this environment to be able to trust? Well, because there are many, many external factors. Let's, let's look at the, some of the ex external pressures being placed upon the agencies. And let's start, well, you know, let's go back to fifth grade civics and let's start with the different branches of government. Let's start with the executive branch. Um, you, you, you have a term inside this book that I want you to kind of talk a little bit about, and that's oppositional oversight. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of lay down what we're talking about with that terminology? So with oppositional oversight, and that's that's core to the relationship between the executive and Congress. And, and this is a term I developed because I was interested in seeing how the, the, the intelligence oversight mechanisms develop over time. So uh, this is about how... You see, and this is very normal for for the development of institutions that they develop incrementally in piece in short spurts, usually, usually driven by some external um, activity, some political event, that type of thing. And so, when I say oppositional in this, this this means that it is the tension that there is a tension between the executive and and um, legislative branches on how these things should work. So, you have the executive and. The agencies, the the secret, the security services are part of the executive. They support the executive. They support those decision makers. So that information is owned by the executive. It, but when it comes to oversight, it is, I would say, borrowed by the legislature. Right. And so this tension has come up in that executive doesn't always want to share certain information. Congress doesn't always want to know. And about intelligence activities. It's, it's not as black and white as one would assume that the executive wants to keep everything secret right. and Congress wants to get everything out of them and that one side's good or one side's bad. The point I make throughout, and I hope this is clear in the book, is that we're not talking bad or good. These are not value judgments on these things. We're talking about relational right. components. And that is, that's crucial to the oppositional framework that I create here, which is to say, this isn't always straightforward. You have Congress sometimes not, as I mentioned, not wanting to know stuff or not or not claiming responsibility once they do know stuff. And we've seen recent examples of that. Right. Um, and in some cases, you want the, you have the executive wanting to open information up to the public, to, to the other uh, mechanisms, because they want cover, for example, right. or blame sharing. Yeah. Those types of things that, well, if we're in this, we want the other branches to know about this, or especially Congress. I, I think the oppositional relationship really is... is between executive and Congress, according to my framework. Um, and that is that comes back to this idea of, of blame in many cases, because we are, as you mentioned at the very outset, talking about activities that are, are pushing the boundaries. And as all intelligence activities, really, or secret activities, or activities that are intended to fill these really dangerous missions. A lot of the potential issues that we talk about when it comes to the CIA and, and governance and, and oversight really stem from its founding, going all the way back to 1947, uh, and the ambiguity behind which it was given its uh, legal rights and its and its uh, its functions. And, and you talk about 
uh, a term that that's that's bandied about for uh, it, I think for political scientists, and I'm not one, but I, I play one on TV sometimes. You said that with a certain uh, tone. Yes, <laughs> I think it, it somewhat goes back to uh, the Constitution itself, where you have the necessary and proper clause in in Article One, Section Eight. See, I can play one on TV. Uh, well, this is the concept of the fifth function of CIA, where during the National Security Act of 1947, it was this ambiguous clause that kind of gave it uh, the necessary and proper uh, kind of idea that Congress was given in the original Constitution. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's function caused five? problems over time? I think the problem with Function 5 is it is exactly what you say. It's very ambiguous, and it basically is a sort of a bucket term. It's a place to put all the other activities that CIA is involved in, and that is the home of covert action. So originally, it was very unclear exactly was assumed to some degree that those types of things would happen within the CIA, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't delineated very carefully at the outset what exactly the agency would be doing. Um, there was a lot of tension about should there even be a CIA or an, or an intelligence um, collection agency in a peaceful world. And that's the thing, too, to remember that I think the way the genesis of intelligence has come from conflict. Right. So World War II, you have a military intelligence structure after World War II. Well, do we still need this this activity? So Function 5 sort of was a slush, was a place for the, all the rest of the activities to go without having to delineate what they were. And that, over time, became complicated because when it comes to covert action, and, and covert action comes up a lot, and it comes up a lot in my book, it comes up a lot everywhere, because it is an active process. So what we're doing when we do covert action is we are actively uh, disrupting a foreign environment. And that might be environmental, it might be political, it might be economic. But what covert action is, is something that is basically penetrating another country's sovereignty and breaking laws. So that covert action at the fifth function, what role covert action should have, what constitutes appropriate behavior in that context, and how it's overseen have all been very big questions within this space. And I think that the ambiguity of Function 5 from the very beginning had several different effects. One was to, to make it easy for the executive to basically use this tool however it chose to, but also made it complicated for overseers in understanding exactly how much they should be requiring right. from this. And again, all of these questions are complicated ones. And, and I don't mean to say that just because I did complicated work and that makes me <laughs> extra smart about all this, but just that there are many, many pieces, and I argue that in the book, that there are so many pieces of this that our early assumptions of congressional oversight is the only way to do this, or that spies are running around and rogue and not telling the truth, um, that none of these things are black and white and right. none of them are that clear cut, that it's relational, that the branches work together, sometimes oppositionally, but, and you also have a lot of internal dynamics that complicate right. the whole um, way this plays out. Since 1947, when the CIA was formed, there have been a lot of actions by the executive branch, whether they were orders from the National Security Council or executive orders that have redefined or continued to define the role of the CIA and the intelligence community. One of the most interesting ones to most people, and certainly to me, is Executive Order 12333 or 12333. You know, this was the early during the Reagan administration, but it's still intact, more or less, 30 years later. Um, and, and this is one that really helps to define the role of the White House and the government in covert action. And, and, and can you talk a little bit about that executive order? Because I, I, that's the one a lot of people point to as the one that 
takes this ambiguity and, and tries to define it a little bit better. Well, it basically tries to lay out what the appropriate roles are of the different agencies and how they should interact with each other. And that's, again, getting back to what you had originally asked me about, which is the ambiguity and how, and, and the issues of Function 5. It is trying to nail down how the, not only what each agency is responsible for, but how they interact with each other and how they're managed. And I think it brings to the fore the role of the National Security Council in many ways and the coordinating role that it plays in terms of bringing together this information in support of presidential decision making, particularly um, well, and particularly with covert action, and he kind of says that the the White House White House is controlling covert action, a little bit of presidential ownership. Of and that is action. very interesting that you bring yeah. that up, um, because the plausible deniability question is core to that, and the fact that one of the crucial pieces of this and covert action has always been, and I mentioned uh, that this is active intelligence. I just want to sort of point out the distinction I'm making there, which is active activity versus right. collection, for example, collection and analysis, which is another part of the intelligence process. So we've got people collecting information all the time and analyzing it and sending it through the chain to the policymaker. But this other piece is covert action is this active piece. And therefore, it becomes very core to accountability and to the oversight process. And also was used as this intermediate tool. You can use covert action because you're don't have to take responsibility for it. We, by definition, it is something that we do not acknowledge. Right. And therefore, it is not a diplomatic activity or necessarily a military activity that's overt. It's this other third road. And that has become very seductive for decision makers over the course of time because why would you not want to use this tool if right. you don't have to own up to it? So when we get back to the ownership piece of this, that has been the core of uh, development over time to say, okay, well, we don't acknowledge this publicly, but internally within the system, we the president must own this. There must be a person who's taking responsibility for this. And therefore, in 1974, there was uh, legislation passed that made the president have to sign what is called a finding. And send. And the finding says this, is, this activity is necessary for national security, and here it lays out what it is. They varied in length, um, notably getting longer over the course of time, as is usual in a bureaucracy, right. um, and they get sent to, to Congress. So Congress is fully briefed on covert actions that are being done um, by the administration. So what that does, again, is why it doesn't break down external, so by uh, the external responsibility for this. So we're not saying to country A, we're doing this, you get right. to know about this, but we are saying internally, this goes all the way up to the top, the top to the top elected official in the administration who is taking responsibility for this particular activity. Well, you just mentioned Congress, and we couldn't have planned this transition any better, because I'd love to move on to some of the legislative branch ideas here. Uh, and you talked about informing Congress. Uh, there's an interesting clause, if you want to call it that, the, the, the idea about timeliness, about how quickly do you need to inform Congress of your plans and covert action. Uh, certainly, members of Congress may want even to be informed of a planned covert action before the fact, but the laws say a different thing. The laws say at some point in a timely, in a timely manner, manner, whatever that means, uh, you have to inform Congress of an ongoing covert action. Uh, where does this come from, and, and what in God's name does timeliness mean? Timeliness is a very interesting question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another place of ambiguity in this great game of accountability and oversight. Um, the fact is, there are a lot of assumptions built into, or a lot of uh, assumptions that there would be leaks, that type of thing. So the fewer people who know about these things, the better, is, has always been the assumption, So which just makes a certain kind of sense. So there has been pushback, and this gets back to the oppositional relationship, where Congress is saying, well, we want to know about these things, uh, or some 
Congress people have wanted to know about these things in a certain time frame. And we're going to build that into legislation so that we you can't tell us a year later that you un undertook a covert action. You must do this in this sort of way. So timely still has ambiguity around it. Right. Uh, and I think that I, what I would say about that is I think it comes back to uh, how that plays out in practice is it comes back to trust between the branches and that they do generally want to abide by the rule. There's good faith here, but they don't, but the executive has traditionally over the course of time not wanted to be um, bound by particular external restrictions when it comes to the timeliness of this. And and timeliness in, in the context of findings is one piece of this, but timeliness or temporality is a question I talk about in the book quite a bit because it affects how accountability works. And by this, I mean, when are you informed? Right. And not just are you informed 24 hours before it starts or 48 hours after a particular program starts, um, but overall when? And what is your recourse? So if you hear about something, so covert actions is a particular specific case, but if you hear about a program that you don't approve of a year later, right. what do you do about that? And yeah, we know that it, as good you know, fifth grade civic students, as you pointed out, we know that the, the main tool is through the budget. You cut funding if you don't want something or you say we will cut funding unless we can change the, the program in this way or, you know, there are particular inputs and, and they're knowledgeable people who are working on this stuff. It's not like these programs are not being overseen by people who that they understand what, you know, the technological pieces of this to, to right. at least a large extent. But that really brings up this other question of what do you do to change behavior then if you find out a year later and by behavior I don't mean individuals necessarily right. but by we don't approve of this program or, or recent programs that have come up such as the um, torture right. and inter you know, interrogation that type of thing and and when do you find out about it and there's been a discussion of that when were they when were overseers told how much did they know? Did they understand what was happening? All of these questions come to play. Again, it's it's a, a kind of a moving game that's happened, or a moving mosaic, I would say, um, that that is that is changing in in in, in dynamic motion all the time. Well, and I think outside the Beltway bubble, people that live this every day, there's a perception that it's relatively straightforward, relatively simple, the relationship between the agencies and the legislative branch in Congress, you have these two committees, one in the House and one in the Senate, set up in the late 1970s. You have HIPSI and you have SSCI. They don't want to be called SISI anymore. But we um, call them that anyway. We call them that anyway, but I was trying to be nice. Uh, set up to try to do this kind of oversight. Um, within those committees, you, you certainly have uh, you know, the leadership of the committees themselves. And so you have things like the Gang of Four and the Gang of Eight to where you can inform less people than the whole Congress. I can understand again, living here, that you don't want to inform the junior Congress member from Idaho because he may go directly to the local newspaper or whatever. No offense to whoever in the world is the junior <laughs> congressperson from Idaho. I'm pulling a name out of the hat. Um, but I think what people might be surprised to find out about is that after 9-11 and the ability to try to consolidate the intelligence community and make it more streamlined and make it more uh, cohesive, you, we got kind of went the opposite direction when it comes to the legislative branch. Instead of just two committees and small groups overseeing the intelligence agencies, you know, you say in your book there are 17 committees now that have some dog in the fight, that have some little bit and piece of intelligence work. Uh, that seems unwieldy. That how, how how can oversight possibly happen with that much going on? Well, I think it's it's basically that you're sharing the the. the 
this mosaic out into the world you're or, or not out into the world let me take that back yeah. um but th there are different pieces of it there's appropriations that come through defense there there are different aspects of this but i would say that it's still that became more problematic when it when it um, deals with for example the department of homeland security that is overseen by more about 80 yeah uh, committees or, or 80 committees have as a, a dog in the fight or have a have an interest one way or the other and that's obviously because of the number of components and all mm -hmm. the different types of activities that are happening there i still argue yes it there um it's not as streamlined as it could possibly be but you do really have centralization in in hipsy and ssci you do have that is where the knowledge base is for these types of activities that's where the responsibility is those committees authorize the budgets um, and they are the ones who are going through all these programs and they, the way it's set up is they have staffers who are responsible, uh, for continually interacting with the agencies. This is not, it, it is not a process that is opaque from within inside. Mm -hmm. They're, they're back channeling, they're talking, they have very deep relationships and in many cases, and this can be problematic in its own way, but the, um, the staffers tend to be drawn from the intelligence community. So they have yeah. some awareness there. And and just to make a point about that is I think everyone within the Beltway knows, but maybe not outside, that the staff work is where this stuff happens. Right. I mean, I was going to bring the idea up. But I mean, a lot of staffs uh, in Congress, not a lot, but some are, are staffed by political lackeys about people who know more about politics than necessarily about whatever subject area that they're in. But intelligence and foreign relations and some of these more important national security committees you know, these are people drawn from the, the community, from state, from uh, these are professionals. Uh, and they're the ones that do a lot of the heavy lifting. Now, saying that, I, I wanted to bring up this this idea with you because I think you could certainly address it. Until recently, SSCI, which is one of the most prominent committees, had a really good relationship with the intelligence communities. I mean, Diane Feinstein, DiFi, uh, who, who until very recently was the chair of SSCI until Congress, the Senate flipped. Uh, it amazed a lot of people when she came out as strongly as she did about the enhanced interrogation, the torture report, uh, because because she had been seen as a huge proponent of the yes. intelligence community and somebody who was willing to say, look, yes, only four or eight of us are hearing what's going on, but trust me, they, they know what they're doing. They're doing the, in the best interest of the country. And then for her to just go 180 degrees in the opposite direction was a bit of a shock for, for some of us here in the bubble. I think that it, it wasn't it was a shock for sure because I think there are a couple different issues here and I just wanted to step back one mm -hmm. one step um, to talk about this concept of capture so that as you point out and as I mentioned too that uh, these staffers are professionals they're in many cases drawn from the community that type of thing so one of the fears has always been with these committees that you, that you will there'll be too much buy-in mm -hmm. that the committees themselves won't have enough objectivity and separation from the actual activities of the intelligence community because either the individuals themselves were part of it or they're they have an affinity for it um, for intelligence activities i mean in that case um so this is a concern when it comes to staff it's also a concern when it comes to the members and definitely senator feinstein has been a huge proponent of the intelligence community for her the duration of her tenure and i think that that that's inarguable and i think w it was a shock when this this tension, shall I say, about the torture report, that type of thing, emerged. And I think that um, it, it has several different factors. It was mainly a political problem. And I think this, and this I say with no, I'm, we're not best friends, she and I, so I don't have any internal secret knowledge of that. But I think there was tension politically within the committee, because in, within SSCI, because of, um, with the Republicans thought this was a politicized 
activity, this report that mm-hmm. they were developing over the course of several years. Uh, and there was they split apart when it came to generating it. And that's one piece of this. Whether these the, those activities should even be discussed was another question. Um, and then there's another question of the relationship between, and this is crucial to oversight because it gets very granular, it gets very personal, and that is the relationship between DCIA Brennan and Senator Feinstein. And that is where I think the real friction came out because he lied to Congress. You're not supposed to do that. Right. So in addition to not supposed to be, not, to having that actually be illegal, I think she felt personally affronted. And I think it was, and I don't know this in terms of, I'm not friends like I mentioned with either of them personally, but that I think uh, it offended her and humiliated her. You're and not I think, friends with anybody. What, 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 you know, objectivity, Brennan, objectivity. No, I see how it is. <laughs> but I do think that this, that, that that came down to a series of political tensions and internally to the committee, but also the inter branch relationship here. And I think that, um, I, I, Senator Feinstein was offended because right. I do feel that she feels that she's always been a great supporter of of the community and its and its ventures and was very willing to to stand up for the intelligence activities um, of our intelligence community. So let's let's move on to easily the least well understood of the branches, uh, the judiciary. I, uh, supposedly, you know, again, going back to fifth grade physics, you're supposed to have a balance of power. You're supposed to have three equal uh, branches of government that all check each other. Uh, but this hasn't been the case historically when it comes to intelligence work. Um, today, we have what many people have heard of the FISA courts, uh, but rarely did you f- can you find anything historically that even remotely comes close to this kind of oversight from the judiciary before this. Am I, am I wrong to make that assumption? No, you're absolutely right. And I think that it goes back to the genesis of all these mechanisms. So the, as we've been talking about fairly extensively, HIPSI and SSCI or SSCI, were stood up in the 70s. And right after that, uh, the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed in 1978. So that all three of these creations, these mechanisms, were put in place following revelations that there had been abuses, intelligence abuses in this country. And this ran the gamut. Some of them are ridiculous. Um, and, you know, or uh, some of them were such as stories being told of putting explosives in Castro's cigar right. or, but more pointedly in this case, to domestic intelligence abuses. Right. And this is, this. I'll get back to your point in one second. I just mm-hmm. want to explain the backstory to why uh, FISA is what it is and why it's set up the way it is, which was that in the mid 70s, and we have to think of the political context of that time, Watergate had happened. The uh, country was embroiled in Vietnam still. There's a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of lack of trust in government institutions. And then uh, Seymour Hersh in the New York Times outs the, the agency's bureau agency, NSA, by saying all these things have been happening and they've been directed against the American people. And this is something that is very important to think about when in, in the external, internal conversation about oversight, because we as Americans tend not to worry so much, frankly, if we're going to blow up Castro's cigar, even though it makes us laugh. Um, but when it comes to our domestic populations, right. that is where the real, real issues come up. And that makes a lot of sense. We want to yeah. protect our own... Um, Freedom and privacy and all of that that came up again, of course, with Snowden. So the 1978 Act was to figure out a way to make foreign intelligence collection within this country be 
overseeable, make it accountable. Because there had been wiretapping, there had been other activities, right. there had been infiltration of student groups, uh, anything that at that point um, looked like it could be a threat to to United States safety or at that time. And we have to remember right. that as we go through history, and you know this more, much more than I do, the threat environment of the time creates a political environment that makes these things seem rational, even though when we might return later and think that they were crazy, crazy right. wonderland, as you pointed out. Right. But with FISA, so that is a way of streamlining how you get an order to wiretap somebody to collect foreign intelligence information within this country. So one of the interesting arguments about FISA that, that people have been making uh, over the past couple of years, certainly you hear this from the left, from people like the ASOU, um, is that FISA is just a rubber stamp, that FISA court uh, requests are never denied. Uh, in fact, as you write in the book, only one single FISA request has had to be kicked up to what's called the, the FISA review court, actually, they, I guess the appeals court for when FISA denies a request, and one since 1978. So to me, you know, I, I may be leaning a little left with myself. It seems like FISA just has no oversight whatsoever. I mean, it, I know it's not as black and white as that, but can you talk a little bit about that concept? Well, being a good Berkeley uh, yeah. <laughs> PhD, I lean a little left myself. But um, in this case, I would say that there are two sides to this argument, of course. There's that side and the side that whether you want to put it on the political spectrum is its own question, but that is this a rubber stamp or is this an effective mechanism? The other side, and I would argue that it is effective in this way, which is, or its strength is not seen because it's not apparent why that happens, why so few um, orders have been turned down. And that is because there's an iterative process. The process is extremely lengthy um, to get one of these orders. So it goes through the Justice Department, has to be signed off, it has to be sent over to these courts, and is checked off again, layer upon layer of individuals are checking off the, these orders, as, order requests, order applications as they go to the court. And if the, if the FISA court has an issue with these, with these particular orders, they send them back. More information, more detail. Why are we doing this? What's the um, importance of this particular activity, that type of thing? So I would suggest that there are two sides. Of course, we can always say, oh, it's a rubber stamp. They just, no matter what, will will say, yes, that's not the case, though, because the institutional process is so deeply involved that they they basically fix the mistakes as they happen. And they ask for more information. And they, again, iterate between the different individuals. So the process is so vetted. The, the requests go through so many channels that uh, the court themselves can look at stuff and tell you if they're going to pass it or not, not unofficially. And so anything that actually gets in front of the court for an official ruling has gone through such a lengthy process that it's, it's not a surprise necessarily. That is right. the argument. Okay. Um, again, there's <laughs> a little opacity to the secret court, <laughs> needless to say. But yes, the argument is that the process is so long. And this has been a problem, a, a perceived problem definitely when um, technology is, is speeding up. We are, are needing different types of tools if we're going to be wiretapping, if you're going to be uh, tracking a terrorist, for example, abroad, those types of things. Is this process, this is a fundamental question about the judiciary and FISA and its effectiveness, is the process too onerous to support what we are trying to do here, which is complete omission? And I think that that's very important to think about, that uh, it can be very easy to get on the side of a, a too far and support, and I, you can't ever support accountability too much, but just to forget that the operational piece of this is what the crucial thing is. And so the process of FISA has been, it's been argued by many, especially within the executive branch, especially the senior 
uh, leaders of the agencies who are trying to get these things sped up so that you know, we have a moving target and we have to send, go through stage after stage after stage after stage of explanation of why we want to do this. Right. And is this the best way to do it? That has been a discussion. Well, and, and there, there are two major acts or bills or programs that have uh, challenged the, that, that exact concept. Uh, and of course, the Patriot Act is one of the major uh, legislative processes that have, have taken on the FISA court to a degree, and then the terrorist surveillance program of the Bush administration, uh, both are an attempt to fix that very problem. Now, how successful they were and is this legit is another question, and we're not going to deal with that. Uh, but how, how, what are the impact of these two programs or bills, like the Patriot Act, the terrorist surveillance program on FISA? Well, we should really separate those two. Okay. Um, so the, the Patriot Act is an act of Congress. It's, it's, it's a different framework for dealing with these types of issues. And that was basically in, in light of 9-11, it was felt that the operational capability of this of the security community needed to be opened so that there needed to be more latitude. And in, we've talked, I think, in this country about a lot about these things. Is it appropriate to gather metadata on people, on Americans? Is it um, a library record issue from years ago, that type of thing. I think it basically made it easier for the information to be shared between law enforcement and intelligence. There had been a barrier between the two, known as the wall. The wall develops through culture and custom, actually, rather than through a formal edict, that type of thing. But the idea was that, okay, 9-11 was the result of it is argued a failure to share this information that maybe these th these different pieces of information have been kept separate too long and that the different purposes of them so for example for law enforcement would be to close a case to to have an arrest and to um, have prosecution happen and intelligence which tends to be longer term with a different intention which is to gather perhaps to gather information um, usually, or to see how relationships between individuals work, to find an eventual target, to investigate networks longer term mm -hmm. with a different intention in mind. So Patriot Act did, um, was effective in, in terms of it opened this stuff up. It made it possible for information to be shared across these walls. There, there actually have been two reforms passed by Congress directly uh, to try to deal with some of the FISA issues. Uh, and, and one of them was called the Protect America Act in 2007, which I, I love these. How do you vote against the Protect America Act in 2007? And there was actually the FISA Amendment Act in 2008. Both were intended to take on this perceived problem of taking too much time, of, of this onerous process to try to get FISA warrants. And a lot of them tackle the issues of the warrantless wiretapping program, uh, for lack of a better word. Maybe that's exactly the what you should talk about. Uh, and really, that's where the TSP comes into play, is try to get around the FISA restrictions on kind of immediacy. Like we, there's a terrorist out there. We think we can find them. Do we have time to wait for FISA to get its act together for this process? Can we just jump in without a warrant? Uh, and, and, you know, if these terrorists are about to blow something up, I mean, can you talk a little bit about how FISA supposedly is this, there's a robust body to check and oversight the intelligence community, but there have been many attempts to get around it. Um, so with the terrorist surveillance program, I don't want to ascribe any malicious intent when it comes to that program. It, it did happen outside of FISA, and it was basically, one argument is, it's made commonly, that it was to get around these onerous processes. How do you, how are we nimble enough to deal with an emergent threat, particularly at that time? And I do want to say, at the risk of sounding like I'm way too friendly with the intelligence community, that this this time frame was, it was 
was, there was a very uncertain time and there was a sense of extreme threat. So some of these programs that we look back to and say, oh, they were trying to evade certain oversight mechanisms or certain processes, that made sense at the time. So with terrorist uh, surveillance program, they basically, w the uh, idea was to speed up the processes, as, as you suggest. At this point, we've, again, we've talked about the internal, we've talked about all the different branches of external, and I, and I think one of the major points of your book that really comes across, and I applaud you on that, um, is that it's incredibly complex, that this is not something as black and white as a lot of Americans want to perceive it, not something as black and white as a lot of members of Congress or even people working inside the government perceive it. Uh, like everything else in the world of intelligence, we operate within the gray. Uh, and you're, in the book itself does does it, it does come across in your argument. Can you kind of wrap things up and talk a little bit about that complexity? Right. It's. I think that um, the complexity of it, it comes from the fact that we have all of these different pieces of this puzzle. And, and it gets back to original assumptions. So we have assumptions that only a couple activities are happening, whereas we have 17 agencies that are operating all the time with different missions. They're operating at different levels. We've got other branches of government um, that are looking into these things, too, that we've got this... Uh, the public reaction to this, the public role, that, which is something we haven't really talked about too much, that the public actually in some ways is a, a form of oversight. And the relationship between intelligence and the public is another piece of this puzzle. So yes, the, and it, there's this large mosaic, of course, of, of activities, of entities that are operating in this space, but also that we're, there's external and internal dynamics to this. And that is something that I highlight a lot in the book because I realized in my investigations, we don't explore that enough. We don't, in some, we have assumptions that the external committees, for example, in, in Congress, are the only bodies that are taking responsibility or overseeing or making sure that these bad spies aren't doing bad things. Whereas that's not the case. We've got the judiciary that's also helping. We've got internal mechanisms every step of the way right. internally to these agencies and internal to the executive branch that are monitoring these activities because of the fact that there is this tension of we have operational requirements that require secrecy. We have a mission or the intelligence, again, too close there uh, to the community. <laughs> we have um, there is a requirement. This is real stuff. And that's as a political scientist, we tend to get away from what real stuff is sometimes. So this book is and I mean, we get out in the clouds, we get 30,000 feet up. Right. And what this book is trying to show is this is a real thing. We have expectations of accountability that our government is open to us as Americans, and we can require them to provide documents and provide more detailed reports on their activities. But we also have a real thing, and that is being kept safe. And the intelligence community is charged with that. And therefore, there's a fundamental tension in how that works. The book is When Should State Secrets Stay Secret? Accountability, Democratic Governance, and Intelligence. The author is Dr. Jen Lester. Thank you, Jen, for taking the time to talk to us at the International Spy Museum. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. 
That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.